so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners. Uh, this actually is my second go-round at getting into Romans chapter 3. I uh, recorded a message yesterday. I actually got off work early, was able to come home. Um, I had to work for my son who was sick and um, got home. I was excited because I was like, hey, you know, I get to do this podcast after all. Um, record it. It was like a 50-minute message. Got back up. Had it downloaded from a WMA to an MP3. There's a lot that goes involved in me in getting these up. Um, and got it all done. And I went to go listen to it. And it was nothing. Just silence. And I was like, oh man. So I re-downloaded it. Reconverted it to the MP3 format. Um, went to listen to it again. And silence. And so apparently um, I had hooked up the recorder incorrectly. Um, so it's a mistake that I shall learn from. And here that was just going to be basically, I guess, my rough draft. So this is going to be the final show. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I talked about, I got done. I was like, man, I thought that was pretty good. Thank you, Lord, that that was that was a good one. And um, so here I go again. I guess apparently there's something he wanted me to say that I didn't say or maybe something I said that he didn't want. Um, so here it goes. We're going to get right back into Romans chapter 3. If you have been joining us through Romans, then um, then welcome back to that. If you this is your first time, then I'd encourage you to start at square one, go back to chapter one, part one. Um, you know, after listening to this one or prior to, either way, I'm just encouraged that you guys are listening. So we'll get right into this. He says, "Then what advantage has the Jew?" Now, here the, the teacher aspect of me is going to come out just for a moment. This this word "then" is an indicator term. It's one that that links a previous statement or a previous thing in which, in this case, the author Paul was stating to us, and now he's linking it to the next school of thought that he's going to be bringing to us. One of those examples is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, this is one of those very famous passages that a lot of people say, we have no idea what this thorn in the flesh is. I believe that Paul tells us and that this term then is actually the indicator term that tells us what this thorn is. So I'm going to read it just to give you an example of this because my job is not just tell you what the word says, but to teach you how to read it. And not only that, but to rely on the spirit of God to to guide you through it because that's his job, right? That's what Jesus tells us in, I believe it's in John where he says that when the spirit comes, he will lead you or guide you into all truth. So his job is to lead us into all truth as we are willing to follow and seek him diligently in so doing. So here's what he says. I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. Okay. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now notice where that thorn was given. It was not in his spirit, but it was in his flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, which is a Greek word that means to buffet or to strike with a fist. Okay. So this messenger of Satan 
was sent to Paul and, um, it was, it was linked as being a thorn in the flesh. Now, I don't know if you've ever been picking blackberries or if you've ever been trimming roses or something and you ever happen to get a thorn stuck in your flesh. That doesn't control you and make you do things as I've heard some people suppose that Paul is referencing that he was demonically possessed in this. Um, a thorn in the flesh does not make you do something. Um, it doesn't choose things for you. However, it can hinder your progression in the work that you are doing. And, and you're going to find out what I mean by that in just a second because I think that there's all kinds of interpretations of this. But again, that word then, I think, gives us an indicator for that. He says um, in verse 8, Three times I pleaded uh, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now I'm going to stop and pause just for a moment because I want us to understand the concept of grace here. Grace is not simply unmerited favor. It's not even in the definition of the word charis, and it's not even the Strong's or the Thayer's, or anywhere in Scripture will you find the definition of unmerited favor. Favor? Yes. Divine influence? Yes. Power? Yes. The concept of this is not necessarily unmerited favor. It's God's power. Okay? That's why he says that word indicator also for, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. You are now weakened in the flesh. You are now being weakened, not in sin, but you are now weakened in a point where you cannot rely on your own strength to get the job done. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power my divine influence upon your life, that, that treasure chest of heavenly riches in which, as Ephesians 1 says, that we have been enriched in him in every way with every spiritual blessing. That's called grace. And he says, it's what allows you to get the job done when you are weakened in of, of yourself. Okay? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Again, this is not a word that simply means sin. Paul is not... In the midst of his sin here, he doesn't have some sort of sin that's going on in which he's got it. He's like, man, I've just got these sins because God's grace doesn't work in you when you are in deliberate sin. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31 makes that abundantly clear. When you're in deliberate sin, God's grace is being profaned, is being trampled upon. And his grace doesn't work on that. He only gives grace to the humble. So it's when we humble ourselves before him and we say, God, I don't have it in my own pockets. I don't have the strength to be able to do this in my own flesh. I need supernatural ability to get this job done. And that's what Paul is struggling with. And it's going to be proven here in just a second with that indicator word, then. He says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then. He says, for his sake, I'm pressing forward to the work of God. I know that I'm in, unable to do it in and of myself. I don't have the strength in and of myself, in my flesh. So I will still press forward in faith, relying upon God's power to powerfully work within me and do in me what only he can do. Paul's not in some deliberate sin. He's not struggling with sin here. He's struggling with the weakness and the inabilities of the flesh. And Jesus is trying to teach him and say, you might not be able to, but I can. Because all things are possible for the one who believes. And he says this, I am content then. With weaknesses, meaning the inabilities of the flesh to get the job of heaven done on earth. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities for when I am weak or weakened, then I am strong. 
You see, this indicator term actually tells us what the, what the thorn in the flesh was. And it was the messenger of Satan that was buffeting him, harassing him, bringing oppression against him, insults, hardships, probably from people that he loves, people that he respects, people that he's always cared about, fellow Jews, other Gentiles, whatever it might be. He is bringing these things against him to try to stop his progression. Same way as when you get a thorn in your flesh and you're still having to try to go pick those blackberries or deadhead those roses or whatever you might be doing, picking the cotton or whatever it might be and your hands are hurting because in your flesh you have now got this inability to keep going and that's when you have to rely upon grace or the power of God to get the job done and Jesus is telling Paul I'm not going to stop the buffeting I'm not going to stop the harassments and the insults and the trials and the hardships because that is how you learn how to obey me well Just as it says in Hebrews 5 when it says Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And the same will be for us. So don't pray to God to ask him to make your life easier because the road that leads to eternal life is supposed to be hard. So going back into Romans chapter 3 after that you know, little six-minute discourse over the concept of then. He is now linking what he has stated previously, and I encourage you to go back to chapter 2 on the podcast I did on that one. You'll, you'll learn a little bit what he's saying in this last half. And he goes right into it here. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. I want you to notice a key word here in the tense that's used here. It's the word were. It's not the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. It's they were. And that's a key indicator for us as to the context of what Paul's trying to establish. He goes on, he says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What is he trying to say here? Well, we have to understand what unfaithfulness means according to the Greek here. This word that's used there is apostia. Or aposteo. And it's a verb, so it's not a noun. It's not talking about the substance of faith. It's talking about the action of faith. What if they didn't act accordingly to those oracles of God? Not to God himself, but to the oracles of God that he had given for them to obey. What if they didn't do their part fully and correctly? What if they failed? Does that mean that, that, that their unfaithfulness or their disobedience to the oracles of God negated the promise that God made to Abraham? By no means. God still was faithful to them even in the midst of their disobedience. We don't have to look very far as time and time and time and time and time again, God was always faithful to the Jewish people to leave a remnant. There was individuals and even groups of people that he disciplined and disciplined severely, but he always remained faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham. And so despite the Jewish people having the favor of God, did that get them anywhere? Well, that's what Paul goes on to say. Listen to what he goes on to say. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, meaning I speak in a natural, fleshly type way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people um, slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. You know, there's oftentimes 
the pronouns that we use in scripture are very important for us to be able to pay attention to. And Paul says, I, obviously he's singling, singling himself out. If he says we, oftentimes that's referencing the church, but in some instances, depending on the context, he's not referencing the church. He's referencing his kinsmen according to the flesh. The fact that he is a Jew. And even if a Jew is an unbeliever, he still sometimes will say we or our, when the context of the passage is suggesting just the Jewish race, not necessarily Christians. So it'd be like, um, if I'm referencing the church, I would obviously say we are the temple of the living God. But I could also use, as an American citizen, I could say that I am a citizen of the American um, nation, and I could say we, and I wouldn't be referencing the church, I'd be referencing something different. And the context of what I'm stating references who we is. And I would believe that's important because I believe Paul is referencing the Jewish people, not the church, here in this passage. When he says, but if our unrighteousness, and he goes, is God then unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a physical, temporal, natural way. <clears throat> because the very next passage that Paul talks about gives us an understanding of what he's really trying to state in all of this. He says this, what then, there's that word again, are we Jews any better off? He said in verse 1 of chapter 3 and going into verse 2, much in every way. The Jews had the advantages. The Jews had the oracles of God. They had the favor of God. They had the promises of God. The commonwealth of Israel. They had everything given to them. The people that were chosen apart from the Gentiles. Every other nation on earth did not have Jehovah as their God. Because God looked upon the Jewish people and he said, I made you a promise. And I will not negate that promise. Until. And that's what we're going to get into. Because they had the commonwealth. They had the law given to them. They had everything given to them. And they had the advantage over everybody else. But here's the problem. It didn't benefit them. Because of one reason. And he gets into it right here. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. You see, we had all that stuff. And yet we basically still ended up just like the Gentiles. Back at square one in the same spot as they did. Because you know what? He says it. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. You see, the Jews had a problem in the same way that the Gentiles had a problem. And it was that they were under sin. Now, what does that mean? To be under something means that something is now your master. If a, a, a wife comes in and says that she is under her, his, her husband's headship. That means that her husband, as it talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3, I know a lot of people don't like to talk about it this way, but this, the word says what it says, um, that um, Sarah called Abraham Lord. And it says she was blessed for that, that she was doing the right thing because she understood that she was under her husband's headship. In the same way, when we come under Christ, we come under the authority of God's word. That means that that is to be the Lord of our life. That is to be the master of our life. That is to be what governs our life. If I'm under a governing authority, that means that that governing authority is exactly that. It is the government in which is supposed to be the authority of my life that I submit to. And here's the problem. The Jews had the advantage. 
They had been called out. They were the chosen race. They were the holy people, the ones that God chose and looked upon and said, I'm going to choose you. And I'm going to give you my law. And I'm going to do all this stuff. And it didn't benefit them in the end. Why? Because they were still under sin. It was impossible, as Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 says, it was impossible for the law of Moses to break the curse of sin. All were sold under the slavery to sin. Every human being that has ever existed. The only difference for a Jew over a Gentile was is that they had atonement for it. They had a means to be able to have an atonement for that sin. But in the end, when it all boils down to it, both Jew and Gentile were sold into slavery essentially under sin. So what advantage did the Jew have in the end when it's all boiled down? Nothing. They didn't have any advantage. Because there had to be a remedy. There had to be something that took place that broke the curse of sin. So that no longer are you under sin, but now you actually, it is now actually under you and you are over it. And we're going to find out what that is. And we're going to see how the Jewish people no longer have any advantage whatsoever. Because the covenant in which God made with Abraham and then instilled the law to show people their sin and depravity and their need to be saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. That whole covenant has now been fulfilled and actually done away with. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Or you could go listen to my Ephesians 2 podcast. Or you could go listen to my Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 podcast. You could go listen to the podcast that I've done over the entire book of Galatians. You could, we'll get into it when we get into Romans chapter 7. That covenant has been fulfilled. And when a person comes into Christ, it has now served its purpose to lead you unto that faith in Jesus Christ. And once you come to that position, you no longer are under that guardian because now you've belonged to another in a combination of Galatians 3 and Romans chapter 7. Here's what he goes on to say. When he reveals the human nature, whether it's Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul goes on and he says this, Now what we know that now we know that whatever the law, meaning the law of Moses, and it's very key to understand what he's talking about here. Because as we get later on into this in verse 31, we're going to have to differentiate between what the law of Moses is where he says the, the um, works of the law and, a, and the law of works. It's going to be two different things. They're not one and the same. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, meaning the law of Moses, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, meaning again the law of Moses, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now you can look at Romans chapter 6.15 just as one of them that talks about it when he says, What then? There's that word again. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
What did he just very clearly state about the Christian? That your authority, your governing authority is no longer the law of Moses. It's no longer the law of Moses. That is not your governing authority because I'm no longer under the law. Or to put it as Galatians 3 says, or as Romans 7 says, that I have died to the law so that I might belong to another. Let me just tell you, if you are still alive to the law of Moses, and that's your governing authority, then you don't belong to Christ. Because it says that you must die to the law in order to belong to another. There was a covenant that was there, and the only way for that covenant to be abolished and to be broken is for a death to occur. That is the only way. And once that death occurs, you are now free to belong to another. This is why it's upheld in the concept of 1 Corinthians 7, 39, I believe is where it is. It says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but only if her husband dies is she free to be remarried. I'm not saying it. That's what the Word of God teaches. And we can try to bring in Matthew 5. We can try to bring in, was it Matthew 18 or 19? And you would be trying incorrectly outside of the context of what Jesus is trying to establish. But a covenant is not annulled until a death occurs. And in the same way, I am no longer under the law of Moses because I live in Christ. This is what the word teaches. So he says, um, it speaks to those who are under the law. I just read in Romans chapter 6 verse 15 that... Those who are in Christ are not under the law. So is the law speaking to me? It's not. It doesn't have a governing voice in my life. It doesn't tell me what to do. This is very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 or Galatians 2, 3, 4, 5 or 6 even. It's very clear in Hebrews 7, 8, 9 and 10. I can make it extremely and abundantly clear all throughout the New Testament. Namely, Ephesians chapter 2. But he says, the law doesn't speak to me. Meaning the law of Moses. The only way, as I was talking to my kids the other day about this, as we were going through, we just finished up the book of Galatians, and recently we just started Ephesians as of this morning. And I was telling them, as I said, does the law still have value? After I went on a big rant and went through chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, and was explaining all that as a recap over it, and they are like, no. And I was like, you're wrong. The law still has value for us. But the only way that the law of Moses has value for a Christian is in as much as it points to the person of Jesus Christ. This is why 2 Corinthians 3 says, even regarding the Ten Commandments, he says, that which once had glory has come to have no glory at all. Why? Because of the glory that surpasses it. It says the glory of Christ is far greater than the glory that was in the law of Moses. And it says it has come to have no glory at all. The only way that it has any value for the life of a believer who is in Christ is inasmuch as it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And that will make sense in just a second. This is why in Luke 24, I believe it's in 42, maybe it's 44, he says, Everything written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms found its fulfillment in me. And it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty fascinating thing to me because these are men who probably had grown up their entire life knowing what the law of Moses said, but they never understood it. Why? Because they had not come into Jesus Christ and they didn't see how the law, the prophets, and the Psalms were pointing to Him. So let me just tell you, if you keep the Sabbath simply because it's what the law of Moses required, then I would say that's borderline idolatry. 
And you're missing the point. If you keep it because you believe it reflects Jesus Christ and you understand that Jesus is the the manifestation of the Sabbath, the seventh day rest in which God did the six days of work to bring about that rest in the seven days, and you see Matthew 11, 28 through 29, he says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, not for your bodies, but for your souls. The spiritual manifestation of what the Sabbath was always pointing to. If you keep the Sabbath because of that, then I have no problem with it. If you keep it because it's one of the Ten Commandments, then I do. If you keep the feast because the law of Moses said that you have to keep the feast, then I have a problem with that. But if you do it because you see the manifestation and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in each and every one of them, and you're pointing to Him and what He has accomplished and done, I'd keep it with you. He says this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. That means that no human being will be approved. And it's very important to note that this is referencing the law of Moses. This is not referencing the concept of the law of works being supplemented to faith. This is referencing the concept of specifically, no one will be able to come to God through works of the law of Moses. You cannot be approved by him. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how many you've kept. I don't care how little you haven't kept. You could mess up one time and you would not be approved before him. The only way to come before him, apart from Jesus Christ, and actually be justified or approved is to be perfect under the law. And that's the problem. No one is righteous. No, not one. There is nobody who can keep the law of Moses Perfectly from start to finish. And that is Jesus' whole discourse in Matthew chapter 5. He says, basically, to summarize everything that's there. He says, if you're going to try to come into this relationship with God in any way other than through me, you will have to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Because I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. But here's the kicker. For a Christian, when you come into Jesus Christ... The law has been fulfilled on your behalf. So it's no longer the governing authority over you. It's no longer the thing that you bow the knee to. It has now been fulfilled and in that fulfillment abolished. And that's where Ephesians 2 comes in. I would encourage you to go read it. Or go listen to my podcast over it. Because I go very much so in depth on that. And that's the beauty of the gospel. He says, no one will be justified by works of the law of Moses. It's impossible. You can't be. There's no one who's good enough to do it. Save one. And his name was Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on. He says, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, he said, prior to, this is how it was. No one was righteous. No one could come before the Father. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That'll, that'll come into play again in just a second. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, check this out, apart from the law. He says, the righteousness of God has now been manifested to all mankind apart from the law of Moses. It's no longer found in your obedience to the law of Moses. It is found in your submission to the person of Jesus Christ. Who, by the way, his commandments were distinct from the commandments of the Father. Why do I say that? Because in John 15, I don't remember what verse it is, just start reading and you'll find it somewhere around verse 7 or 8. He says this, 
that if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. There's a distinction between the commandments of Jesus and the commandments of the Father. And Jesus gave His commandment just two chapters prior to. In John 13, 34 through 35, which is then echoed all the way through the New Testament. Specifically, even in John, uh, 1 John 3 and 1 John 4, when he says this, A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That you love one another as I have loved you. And 1 John 3, I believe it's in verse 16, says, By this you know that you've passed from death unto life by how you love the brothers. He even says later on, this is how we know love. That Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. How you love the church, the family that is born of God, is the greatest indicator as to whether or not you have been born of the Spirit. And this is what 1 Timothy 5.8 is all about, that many people always get misconstrued because they think that it's referencing um, extended relatives and your earthly family is like those who are family by blood. That's not what he's referencing. If you go into the Greek, you're going to find that that word used for household there is a word that is solely represented for the household of the faith. This is why he says, if you don't take care of your earthly family, yeah, that those who are bound to you in a physical blood, yeah, that's, that's bad. But if you don't take care of the family of God, which is what the faith of Christ is all built upon, to love one another, if you don't love the ones that you share the blood of Christ with, then you have denied the faith and are you worse than an unbeliever or an infidel? Because you know better. So 1 Timothy 5.8 is not referencing your blood family and extended relatives. It's referencing your blood family as those exterior ones, the relatives, and then the household of faith, the ones you are blood with through the blood of Christ. And if you deny them, then you will have denied the faith and what it's all about. That's a serious, a serious accusation. You can go into Galatians chapter 6, I believe it's in verse 9, when he says, As we have opportunity, then let us do good to all, but especially the household, same word, of faith. Ephesians 2 says the same thing. He says that the righteousness of God now has been manifested apart from the law. It's no longer the law of Moses that is going to be the medium in order to get righteousness. He says something else has now been manifested apart from the law. It doesn't have anything to do with the law any longer in this new covenant. It is a righteousness that comes not from the law of Moses and our obedience to those oracles that were given to the Jews that gave them a slight advantage over the Gentiles but failed in the end. As it talks about, I believe it's in Romans chapter 8 where it says that the law made nothing perfect. Because of its weakness and its uselessness, it was set aside. That's, that's literally what it says. Okay, I'm not making it up. That's literally what the text says in Hebrews. I encourage you, go read 7, 8, 9, and 10. You're going to find it right there. It says, what, it says, it has now been made obsolete and a new covenant has been brought in. It's not a renewed one, it's a new one. And he says, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is what I was talking about before. Is that everything written down in the law and the prophets and the Psalms 
was bearing witness to the person of Jesus Christ. Even the covenant that God made with Abraham was bearing witness to the coming of Christ. Because it says in Galatians 3 that it says to your offspring in whom I will be, it will be he will be the propitiator essentially of um, descendants as far as the sands of the seashore through Isaac. But it says in Galatians 3 that it doesn't say to offsprings but to offspring which denotes one who is Christ. Either the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac was only a precursor to the covenant that the father was going to make with his son. And the life that would then come through that son into the people and bring about descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. But once that covenant with Christ was established, the one with Abraham and Isaac was annulled. That's what Galatians teaches. And the law was instituted and worked perfectly in God's plan in order to bring about the person of Jesus Christ and our need for him by revealing our depravity and the human nature, which is what Paul is trying to state in 9 through 18. And so he goes on and he says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, not that you have become the righteousness of God. I think that's a big misconception. I know a lot of people use the 2 Corinthians 5 passage to say that we might become the righteousness of God. But here's what it doesn't say. That we would be the righteousness of God. That's not what it says. It actually uses a conditional term on that. I apologize for that. I thought I'd turn my phone down. It says that we might become the righteousness of God. And I would argue this point that in Galatians 5.5, 5, Paul says this. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. If Paul has already become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then why is he eagerly hoping for it? Why does he say in 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4.7-8, that I kept the faith, I finished the race, I fought the good fight. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of Righteousness. Well, if he already had the crown, then why is it laid up for him at the end after he's endured? You see, the, the distinction is, is that I have been given access under the righteousness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. I have a throne of grace that I can come to and find help and grace in time of need. I have something, a garment that I can clothe myself in. But that garment does not become permanent until I endure to the end. And I receive the promise that God has said that he would give all those in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, what is that? I think it's also in chapter 5 where he says that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. You want to um, find the promises of God in the end? Then you better be in Jesus Christ because that's where they all come from. And so he says this, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're a Catholic right now, I'm going to tell you this. That includes Mary. This is why in Luke 2.42, whenever Mary is pleading in the Holy Spirit, and she's talking to Elizabeth, I believe, and she says, How is it that the Lord, my Savior, would be born to me? Well, let me just tell you. The reason why Mary needed a Savior is because she needed saving from her sin. She was not without original sin. She had sin. I could get into why Mary is elevated and venerated and worshipped in the Catholic Church today. I could go back to the whole concept of Constantine, but I don't have time for that. 
What I will tell you is that when the Bible says that all have sinned, that no one is righteous, no, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every person that existed before Jesus ever walked this earth, every single person had fallen short of the glory of God because they had sin in their life. And he says this, and are justified or brought into an approved standing before God by His grace as a gift. Now we misunderstand grace. In this capacity, it would be defined as unmerited. And this is why. is because when I was an unbeliever, dead in my sins, an enemy unto God, I was born into that standing. I didn't become an enemy of God. I didn't make myself an enemy of God as an unbeliever. I was born as an enemy of God. I was dead. I was blind. I was deaf. I was mute to anything of the heavens. And so God had to freely extend this grace to me, even though I didn't deserve it, in order to bring about the justifying work of the Holy Spirit in my life to bring me into an approved state as I submitted and surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. And I chose to believe in Him. But once my position changes to being in Christ, my relationship And the whole concept of grace changes. Here's what I mean by that. 1 Peter 5.5, and I believe it's in James 4, I think it's verse like 6, somewhere in there. He says the same thing. That God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, unmerited means that it can't be earned. That there's nothing you can do to qualify you to be able to get something. And there's nothing that you don't do that would um, prevent you from getting it. It is unmerited, undeserving, unearned. You cannot get it by doing or not doing anything. It is freely given to you. Now, as I said, as an unbeliever, that is unmerited. But once I become a believer, enlightened to the Holy Spirit and the work that He has done and the cost of grace on that cross, God says, you're going to have to earn it. And if you're going to be proud and haughty before me, I will not extend that grace to you. You will not have it reckoned to your account. This is why he says things like in Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's in 14 and 15, he says, Make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and by it many become defiled that no one, um, and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. If it is solely unmerited, then how do I have any responsibility and if somebody gets it or doesn't get it? How is it that Paul had to learn how to rely upon grace? It was extended. It was offered to him saying, hey, I've got it here for you, but you're going to have to do something to get it. Let me give you an analogy. Our mower broke. We have a, um, a mower that I have to mow the six acres that I've got out here um, weekly, and it's, it's quite a chore, um, and my, my oldest son helps me out on that, but I have a push mower to mow just around the house. And my second oldest son does that. And so I was thinking of this analogy the other day that I had 20 bucks. And I was like, you know, I I could freely offer this to Elijah and say, hey, Elijah, you didn't do anything for me to choose to offer this to you. And I've got this 20 bucks in my pocket and I want to give it to you. It's right here. It can be yours, but I need you to mow this yard. And so he comes up and he gets the mower, fills it up with gas and he goes out there and he does a half-hearted job on it. And he leaves patches of grass everywhere. And it's zigzagged all throughout. And he comes up, and he's got a little sweat on his brow. He doesn't even put the mower up. It's still sitting in the front yard. And he walks up to me. He's like, all right, Dad. Did what you said. Give me that money. 
Let me just tell you, any parent who is worth their salt of being a parent ain't going to give him that $20. Even though you've got it, and even though you have freely extended it to him and said, all you got to do is mow the yard and you can get this, then you can actually use it however you choose. But you're going to come to me with an attitude like that. You're going to check yourself. You're going to check your pride. You're going to check your haughtiness and your entitled spirit that you are coming to me with thinking you are entitled to that money. He resists the proud. But if my son goes out there and he mows that yard, even if it doesn't look exactly how I think it should look, but he did what I said. And he puts the mower up and he comes up to me and he's exhausted and he's tired and he's got sweat dripping everywhere. And he comes up and he goes, Dad, would it be okay if I got that money? Any parent with their salt is going to give it to him. That is how grace operates in the kingdom of heaven for a believer. You see, you've been given the ability to mow that yard. You've been given the strength to do it. And when we go out there in humility and we do what the Lord is asking us, just like it was with Paul, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in your inability, in your own self, in your own flesh. You have to trust me in faith to take a step of faith and trust that what you need will be there. When we come humbly before his throne, he says, I will give you the grace that you need in time of, uh, that grace that you need in time of need. So the concept that he's talking about here, that we were justified by his grace as a gift, it means that he took us from an unapproved standing and he moved us into an approved standing in his son. Now this is also a misconception oftentimes of the church because a lot of people think that it was we were justified for all of eternity. No, you were given the position of being in Christ and you were brought into an approved standing, but you have to actually do something. In order to remain in that approved standing. And if you don't believe me. If you think well that's heresy. That's, that's work based. That sounds like something I've got to do. Well let me just read what Philippians 1. I believe it's 9 through 10 says. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and all discernment. So that. You may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, it's also interesting in 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved. You know, what's that word for justified? It means approved. He says, do your best to present yourself before God. Who's best? Your best. As one approved. Not before man, but before God. And he says... Do your best to present yourself before God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He says, you've got a job to do to make sure that you approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for that day of Christ so that you can actually stand before him as one approved, not as one not approved. As he talks about in 2 Timothy 2, 20-22, when he says that we must cleanse ourselves from anything that is dishonorable so we become a vessel of honorable use to the Master. So flee youthful passions. We have this whole concept that's built in the church today because of the traditions of man and the teaching of man that came probably about four or 500 years ago in which says that all past, present, future sins were wiped away, forgiven, and forgotten. 
when you came into salvation. Let me just tell you, I know a lot of people who teach that and who believe that, and I have a lot of respect for a lot of these people. But let me just tell you, it is not what Scripture teaches. And I would say that because in Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 30, the author includes himself in this. And there's three very distinct points within this chapter, within this passage, in which it is crystal clear that it's referencing only a believer. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, notice that the author includes himself by saying we. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant, check this out, by which he was sanctified. Notice the past tense in that. A person who was sanctified by the blood of the covenant chose to then go on sinning deliberately. He says, you don't have a sacrifice for sins for that. Well, that would be a future sin. And the word clearly states that there is no sacrifice for that. I find it fascinating that in 1 John 1, 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He includes himself in that, and it's about 60 years after his conversion. Future sins for him. And he doesn't say, if we confessed our sins, he was faithful to forgive us of our sins, as if he's talking about the point of salvation whenever you came into him. He's talking about the present tense. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So we have been given access unto righteousness, access to be forgiven, access to plead the blood of Jesus, access to do something in which God will then wipe it away entirely from that moment. But if we choose to sin... Even in covenant with Jesus Christ in this new covenant, you will give an account. It doesn't negate your salvation. It just means there's going to be a consequence. So don't, don't buy into the teaching that all past, present, future sins are wiped away when God looks at you. He sees the blood of Jesus because I'm going to tell you, he doesn't. He could. But he doesn't automatically see it for all time. And this is proven here when he says this. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice the position. Whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Now that word for former is a Greek word progenomei. And here's what it means. Those which happened before, sins done previously, those, had, those which had already transpired. So even this verse is telling us that when you come into Christ, every sin that you have ever previously committed is wiped away because of your ignorance, because of you not knowing what the truth was, because of you not being in Christ. When you came into Christ and at that moment of salvation, he says you were, your slate was wiped clean. What this verse is not saying is that your future state is wiped clean as well. You have the authority and the ability to have it wiped clean through the blood of Christ. To have it washed away. To have, as it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, we have that ability. 
But just because you came into Christ does not mean that it is an absolute for all of eternity. And I think that we would do well to take notice of this because there's some, some things that are not congruent with that teaching in the rest of Scripture. Namely, the one I read in Hebrews chapter 10, 26-30. He goes on, he says this, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He says Jesus changed it all. Jesus changed everything. The Jew and the Gentile both were sold under sin. Both of them were under sin. The Jews had the law, but it didn't benefit them at all. They were all back to square one. When it all came down to it, every single one of them was under sin. No one was righteous. All had fallen short of the glory of God. The Jews which had the advantage, it didn't pay off in the end. So Jesus was sent to be the remedy for sin's nature within mankind. So that we no longer have to live under sin's thumb. We can actually rise above sin. And we can be more than conquerors. And we don't have to give into it. Because of the authority of God that lives in our life. <coughs> Excuse me. When he says at the very end. Right before he ascends. He tells the disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he says now. I give it to you. Because that's what Ephesians 1 and 2 teach. And he says so go therefore. And make disciples. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. The authority of Christ has been given to us to live this life. That's why I hate it when people say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's all I am. No, that's who you were. Don't you dare relegate that to who you are now. You were supposed to be so much more than that. Are we going to fail at times? Sure, that propensity is there. The probability is even there. But so is the possibility to not fail. This is why 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we have the authority to take every thought captive unto obedience to Jesus Christ. We just stopped training because we got comfortable being infants and children in the Lord. And so that's why we've relegated ourselves to being like, you know what, I'm just going to be a sinner. That's just who I am. And praise God, I just, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, that's who you were. That's not who you were ever intended to remain. So he says this, and this is a pretty important thing that I want us all to understand. Then what becomes of our boasting? I believe that he's referencing there not as the church, but as the Jews. What becomes of our boasting? Remember what he talked about earlier? What then in verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. You see, we had all the promises. We had it all. Everything was there, but we're not any better off than Gentiles were. He says, so what, became, what becomes of our boasting? The boasting that we had, that we were God's people. He says what? It is excluded. Now that's a word, ek, ekleo, is the Greek word that's used there. It means to be shut out of. Kleo is the root word of that. It means basically this, that the heavens are withholding the rain. The heavens have been shut up. The heavens are no longer pouring out. The heavens are now closed for business. They are not open. That's what he's saying. Our boasting of being God's people... As now we have been shut out of being able to, be, to boast that. And this is a big hot point for me. Because here's the deal. Jesus says in John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you say that the Jews are still God's people. Then what you are saying. I'm talking about unbelieving Jews who have not come in through Jesus Christ. You're talking about just the nation of Israel. The people. The Jewish people. Here's what you're saying. Jesus is a liar. Because it's possible to belong to God. 
outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the only way to the Father. But when you say that the Jews are still God's people, here's what you're saying. Jesus is a liar and there's another way to belong to God outside of Jesus Christ. And I have a big problem with that. Paul says it right here. What has become of our boasting of being God's people, of having the advantage as the Jews? He says it is excluded. It is now shut up and not open for business. And he says, by what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith in Jesus Christ. That is what has caused it to where the Jews can no longer boast as being God's people. And I am sickened when every single time I hear somebody say that the Jews are God's people or that Israel is the holiest place on earth. Let me just tell you, those are lies that are from the natural thinking man who has not become spiritual in his thinking. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, I want you to notice the two distinctions. I'm going to wrap it up with this. You see the concept of a law of works and you see a concept of works of the law. Two different things. One is referencing the law of Moses. One is simply just representing the concept of supplementing works to the faith. He says this, or is God the God of Jews only? He's bringing it back. He's like, is God the God of the Jews only now that Christ has come? Now that righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law? Is God only the God of the Jews? Here's what he says. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It does not matter. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God, anyone who chooses to be saved under the name of Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life has access into the kingdom of heaven. He says this, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And this is where it's important to understand the distinction. It is not referencing that we uphold the law of Moses. Otherwise, much of the New Testament would be invalidated. What it is saying is that we must uphold the concept of supplementing the law of works to our faith. You see, faith is a muscle. And if I'm not going to supplement works to that faith, then that muscle will weaken and eventually wither away. This is why 2 Peter 1 says that His divine nature is granted to us all things that pertain to the life of Godliness. That we are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the end. For this reason, therefore, supplement to your faith. And then he goes on and he says, works. And you know what? None of those works come from the law of Moses. But they do come from the law of Christ, which is not the same, as I've already established. So we still uphold the concept of a, of a need to supplement works to our faith. It's just the difference between the Old Testament was there was a faith in a coming Messiah and a law that was given that was pointing forward. And once that was fulfilled in Christ, where the faith in Christ has now been given and a law, which would be the law of Christ, has now been given, we supplement the law of Christ and the works of that, which is namely Love one another as I have loved you. By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We supplement those works unto our faith in Christ. So it's now the fulfillment of what the Father promised the Son and supplemented a work through the intermediary of Moses into that covenant. Now the fulfillment of that has come 
And the abolishment of the old that is now made obsolete has been fulfilled because of the greater glory that surpasses it. The father now giving the life to the son who then says, I'm going to give a law that you're going to live under. And it is not the law of Moses. It's the law of the spirit. Which is not the same. So on the contrary, we don't overthrow the need for us to supplement works to our faith in order to keep that faith strong and find ourselves justified in the end. This is why James 2 is such a conundrum for a lot of people. is because they don't understand James 2 isn't referencing works of the law. It's referencing works of Christ. And that's why it says you see that a person is not justified, meaning not justified in the end or approved before God in the end simply by faith alone. But by works. And in that sense, there is works based within our salvation. Faith gets us in, and faith preserves to the end. We are guarded by God's power through what? Faith. Faith is the bedrock of it all. But works, well, works are going to supplement to that faith to either make our faith strong. Or the wrong kind of works are going to make our faith weak. Maybe I should say even the lack of works will weaken our faith. And possibly cause us to not be found justified before God in the end. This is why Paul says, I fought the fight. I kept the faith. I finished the race. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Which God not only will reward to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. And may we not be found, as Paul warns the church in, Galatia, in uh, Corinth, by using himself as the example in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, when he says that essentially I discipline my body, I keep it under control. He says I'm supplementing works to my faith, the right kind of works to my faith, lest after preaching to others, I myself will be disqualified. And you know what that word means? It doesn't mean disqualified from him getting to preach. That's not the context. The context is running the race. Finding the imperishable wreath in the end. He says that I myself would be disqualified, adokimos, unfit for the race and unproven. And so listener, I would encourage you to make sure that you're supplementing the right works to your faith. Because if you don't, your faith will wither up. That's why it talks about in Hebrews chapter 10 of shrinking back from him in shame. Your faith will wither if you're not supplementing works. So may we be a people who supplement the works under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses, but the law of Christ, unto the faith that we have in Him. May we rely upon the grace of God to live out a supernatural life. May we study the Word to show ourselves approved. May we approve what is excellent and, and with all knowledge and discernment so as to be pure and blameless before Him on that last day. And may we not go on sinning deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth and trample upon the Son of God and the grace and the covenant that we have entered into. And may we all realize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God prior to knowing Jesus Christ. But once we come into Him, all authority in heaven has been given to us to live out a supernatural life in the reflection of Christ our Lord and our Savior. Y'all be blessed.